Hi, Damien Marcus from 100 Not Out here. MP. Yes, Damo. We all know the importance of having a diary, but who wants a boring old day planner? Not me. Enter the journey of me. Ta-da! The incredible eight-month wellness journal designed especially for wellness peeps like you. Yes, Damo. This beautiful eight-month wellness guide is filled with questions, planners, exercises, reflective notes, and more. Endorsed by the Up For A Chat girls and loved the world over, the journey of me is a must-have if you're ready to live your best life for life. To purchase your very own journey of me and receive a free set of inspirational postcards, simply enter the code COUCH at www.wellandnew.com. That's www.wellinuex.com. Thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to The Abnormal Psychologist, the show that shares everyday insights into getting the best out of your mind, body, and lifestyle. Now, please welcome your host, The Abnormal Psychologist herself, Carrie Thompson-Casey. Hello, and how are you going? Welcome to another episode of The Abnormal Psychologist with me, your host, Carrie Thompson-Casey, the show where we are giving you the how-to to get the best out of you. And today is an episode with me where I cover a few topics in terms of emails I've been getting or things that have been in the media. Um, So let's get right down to it. So even though I like these podcasts to be evergreen, meaning that they can be useful to anybody at any time, I think the next subject will be useful to anyone at any, any time. But it is something that has unfortunately been in our media quite a bit, and that is domestic violence. And it is a tough topic to talk about. Um, And everyone's going to be coming at this or listening to this from a different perspective. My perspective on domestic violence is that one of my earlier career roles was in a violence prevention team. And that team um, was based in a rural area and it encompassed working with children and adults who had experienced sexual violence. It also worked with children who had been in abusive or neglectful environments. So from the outside, it does sound like a very difficult job. And certainly there were some very tough stories to hear, but an important part of my job was, and my training, is that I was able to hear those stories. And of course, as a psychologist, we have mandatory supervision, and that was a very important part of that role. But I think out of many of the roles that I have worked in, that role taught me so much about people and children and parents and about resilience. I mean, it was incredible to hear what people had survived and the courage that they showed and that they did put one foot in front of the other and went on to thrive despite that part of their story involved things that many of us could not even imagine. And so that was really in a very valuable role and, you know, I, I really – felt that, you know, it's very difficult to explain how you could enjoy a role that is in that context of violence. Um, But certainly having spoken to other violence workers now and, and when I was in that role, they would say the same, that, you know, being in that role can also be quite rewarding in terms of seeing 
that resilience in people, seeing people survive um, and, and seeing people not have their story dominated by those experience, the experiences that, I ha- that they had and knowing that their story was, there was more to them than that experience. So yeah, it's a tough topic to talk about, but a really important one. And, you know, interestingly, the uh, Australian Psychologists Magazine, the Australian Psychological Society's Insight Magazine, and at times you will have seen me put references to that in the show notes, um, and I will again today. But interestingly, they have a whole cover feature on domestic violence for their October edition. So I'll give you a link to that. But I just wanted to share with you some of the statistics around domestic violence that they have put in that article. Um, And the first one is that one in three women aged 15 years and over have experienced physical violence, one in five sexual violence, and one in four have been emotionally abused by a partner. I think that apart from those statistics being frighteningly (laughs) frequent, I think it's important to understand that with domestic violence, um, and we would have seen the commercials that share how it's not just about the physical, the the physical abuse, which of course is significant and, and terrible, but often what I would see is things like social isolation. So separating the um, victim, for want of a better word, from their peer group or from their family, um, not allowing them to have contact with people um, or, or even you know, dividing parent from child, so mother from daughter, say. So setting up barriers for that relationship in terms of preventing them to to connect with their support people, which of course flows on later to make it very difficult for people to be able to get support, whether that's to, you know, resolve the issue or to even leave that relationship. So that, that, that restriction and that violence doesn't isn't just about physical violence. It's also about financial restriction, controlling how much money the person has access to, um, restricting how much they can access their peer group or family. So there's lots of different ways in which that violence can occur. Another statistic reported in the article says that about 60 to seven, 60 to 70 women are killed each year in Australia by a current or former partner, domestic homicide. So again, you know, that's frightening to hear that that many women are being, you know, killed at the hands of their partner. So it also, what concerns me is how many people are severely injured but don't die that are also part of that statistic. It also talks about um, that while men are more likely to be victims of violence, it's also violence can be perpetrated against men as well. So it it's not just about um, husband and wife or male to female. It can be also in gay relationships as well or also female perpetrated against a male. Also in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population, they are 31 times more likely to be hospitalised due to family violence compared to other women. And that's a really tough statistic to have to wear as well, 31 more times. 
So the statistics are telling us that this is happening in our community. And I think the tricky thing for friends and family is how do you support someone you know who may be experiencing difficulty associated with domestic violence in their family or in, in their immediate relationship. And I guess one of the easiest resources to direct you to is a online website called theline.org.au. So that's www.theline.org.au. And on this website, there is a great deal of information on how to get help and how to get help in different types of circumstances, whether you've been you know, hurt quite physically, um, whether it's about getting relationship advice, um, crisis support, suicide prevention. It also looks into um, a person's legal rights and responsibilities and, of course, directs you to even more useful websites and resources. There's also um, uh, different types of call services that can be used for people from different languages or um, hearing disabilities. So it's certainly worthwhile having a bit of a look at the line. Um, and of course, there are other other sites that talk about um, how to stand up for or stand up against violence. So in terms of groups like um, that, sorry, I can't think of it now. <laughs> That's just left my head. In terms of standing up for women's rights, I think there's um, the white, is it the white ribbon um, events where people can, um, and reclaim the night, uh, other events that can happen in your local community about standing up against domestic violence in your community. So that's a really important topic that I think is happening for people and certainly I've had a few people um, reach out to me by email and talk about their, their experiences. And again, as much as I love to hear people's story, it's really tricky. I can't dispense advice over email. So um, the easiest thing I can do is hopefully share this information and, and, and I encourage you to share it with people you know as well. Um, certainly share that website with them. Um, and there are many others to talk that talk about domestic violence. The other interesting thing about the line.org that it gives people strategies on um, how to leave the relationship if they're in immediate danger in terms of how to make a quick escape. So that is pretty much it for what I'd like to talk about in terms of domestic violence today. I encourage you that if you're experiencing domestic violence to reach out for help if it's safe for you to do so um, or if you know someone who's experiencing domestic violence that it, it would be you know helpful for you to have a look at these websites to understand how you can help but sometimes it is about safety too and trying to understand what is the safest way um, to help someone and that may not be in the most logical or the first way you think about helping them. Sometimes it doesn't help someone to, to go in and rescue them. It may need to be a bit more of a thought out process and there's certainly services that can help you with that process or help you assist others with that process. But ultimately, ultimately, the responsibility for this violence rests 100% with the perpetrator of that violence. But I understand that many people want to help their friends. So it's important that they understand the safest way for all to go about that. So do, do um, 
look at resources, find out if there's any refuges in your area and you can have a chat to them about options that have worked for women locally um, and they may be able to even talk about options that may help you or your friend in the situation that you're in. So hopefully there's something there for people who want more information on domestic violence. But I'm going going to change tack a bit now and also look at a couple of other topics that people have been um, contacting me about. And that is motivation. And motivation is really tricky. And I think the best idea is for me to interview someone who's an expert on motivation. But just quickly um, giving you a bit of an idea of my my take on motivation. Um, and most often it's motivation around exercise. So I had a little bit of a dig around in some of the research on motivation specifically to exercise. And I found an article uh, by Dimmick and colleagues um, that was actually in a the Australian Psychology Journal called The Australian Psychologist, and that um, that journal provides research papers in the area of psychology. And their particular article, which is called Seek and You Will Find, The Influence of Expectations on Evaluations of Physical Activity. So basically, that's a bit of a fancy way of saying how is it when we value the outcome of exercise or our expectation that exercise will be valuable – it's more likely that we will be motivated to do that. So motivation to exercise, a lot of people talk about it's just doing it, but I often argue that that is a really tricky thing to do. It's If we are in the habit of not exercising, that is a really powerful habit, the habit to not to exercise. But what I found really interesting about this article is that it does break down that some of what is motivating to the person that does exercise or wants to start exercise is really having a look at what's your actual expectation of what will be a result of that. Because I know if you're anything like me, that sometimes the expectation of exercise is that it will take too long. I don't have time. I'll feel all hot and bothered. Or if I exercise today and it takes so much effort, it won't make any difference unless I have to exercise every single day for the next month. So it's almost like forecasting that the exercise to be done today is overwhelming because you have to do it thereafter and every single time after that. So it gets really tricky. So of course, it's going to feel overwhelming if we're imagining what would it feel like today to exercise every day for at least the next month to try and start to make some changes to your fitness or or body weight. So what they're talking about, or my interpretation of the article, is that we have to really check in with what our expectation of exercise is going to be. Because if we expect the exercise to be fun, if we expect it to contribute to our health goals, it's more likely to influence our motivation to exercise. And we know that expectation is really powerful about whatever task we're trying to do. And we know this through placebo studies. And I have talked um, both at the Wellness Summit and I think in previous podcasts about a study that Goal did that looked at how when given – I'll start from the beginning. So there was a a project where they worked people through smaller sized sheds or cages – 
to work out and improve their agoraphobia. So they started at a big one and they moved through decreasing sizes. And before they started, they gave everybody some medication. And in that process, they were coached through and everyone got through at the end and they had managed to go through the decreasing sizes with success. Then they took them off to two different groups and they said to one group, you took um, a medication, an anti-anxiety medication, and they said to the other group, you took a placebo. Interestingly, interestingly, with this study, no one took any medication. Everyone took a placebo, but what they wanted to measure was how did that affect over time a return of symptoms? And what it was discovered was that the group who thought they took the anti-anxiety medication, they actually had a return of symptoms. So what does all that mean? So basically what that means is that the person put their results in that particular exercise down to the medication, that they didn't achieve them themselves, which is really important and powerful in any pursuit that you may choose to to pursue. (laughs) So when we come back to motivation for exercise, if you're expecting it to be difficult, to be painful, to be time-consuming, to not give you results fast enough, then your motivation is going to take a hit. But if your expectation is realistic or hopeful or that you believe that it's going to start to contribute to overall change in body weight or health and fitness, this is much more likely to be motivating motivating for you to do the activity like exercise. But not only that, in Dimmick's study, they also reported that expecting a positive outcome, so anticipating that, that the exercise will be beneficial in some way, It doesn't just affect motivation. They also say that it's possible that there are neurological underpinnings. That is that there are actual effects on the brain and the body to hold these positive expectations about exercise. So that's really interesting to know. And I'm not sure if you may have listened to different programs that talk about the importance of visualization. And this is certainly where visualization can assist in looking at how you can motivate yourself to exercise. I know that people like John Gabriel in his uh, program, he certainly talks about how important visualization is to imagine yourself making good health choices and to imagine yourself feeling the benefits from exercise. So feeling more energy and having better sleep and really importantly, that sense of achievement. And sense of achievement is also really critical to motivation. And it's actually really important for our mood as well. Um, So sense of achievement can come from various areas. So if we sidestep away from exercise for the moment and just focus on away from motivation and towards achievement, this can be really powerful to improve your mood. And you have to know yourself to understand where is it that you get your sense of achievement from. So for someone, it might be baking a perfect batch of pumpkin scones. And for the next person, it might be doing a better time or a better weight in their CrossFit challenge. So there's different ways in which we can get achievement, but certainly achievement 
helps us improve our mood and does also improve our motivation. So some things also um, might not be fun achievement. So, but we have to count those achievements along the way. So for example, um, sometimes for me, I have to give myself a high five for getting out the door on time. The children have a healthy lunch packed and they have their hair done, teeth brushed and their uniform on and I get to my office on time because sometimes just that in the morning can feel like a really big challenge. So making sure that sometimes the little things. Also, something that I um, try to do every day is make my bed. And there's been research about this. And I know that Tim Ferriss has talked about this on his podcast as well, where they talk about how making your bed in the morning gives you that first win of the day. And that can be really important for setting yourself up for a sense of achievement for the whole day. So it feels like you give, gives you a win, but you might have something else that, that feels like a sense of achievement. So some people might get up and do oil pulling in the morning, which is where people squish oil around their mouth for healthy gums. So they, I think they use coconut oil or sesame oil. And I certainly went through a phase of oil pulling, but I'm not, not in a phase at the moment. It might be uh, that you are focused on having a lemon juice in water. I need you to see that as an achievement already if that's the first thing that you do that day. Because when you think about it, you really are achieving a great deal most days. When you stack up all those little wins, you can start to see just how how good you are at getting things done. Another thing that I see a lot in my practice, certainly not when someone's in the phase of initial treatment and they might be quite anxious or quite depressed, but later on when we're a bit more productive, I often see people talk about how time poor they are. So what I suggest they do is they sit down and they write down the time that they wake up and the time that they go to bed. And if they work to to cut out that chunk in the middle as work time and and being in that work role and to try and find how many hours they have a day. Um, And even recently, I talked to someone about that, actually quite a few people in the last few, few days. And what we've come across is that some people are finding um, one person even (laughs) it had, you know, around 12 hours free a day. And by free, yes, there's lots of things that take up time. But one of the biggest things that take up time is us resenting that we don't have time and saying to ourselves, there's just not enough time in the day. And I know there's people listening that have so, so many commitments and maybe this little part of the conversation is not for you. But I really do encourage you to sit down and do that exercise where you sit down and say, okay, this is the time that I wake up and this is the time that I go to bed. This is the time that I devote to having my work hat on and being totally immersed in my work role. What other commitments do I have that take up time? And write them in a list and realistically write how much time that you do spend on those activities. And I think you'll be surprised at how much time you do have available through the day to spend on your self-care or to take time out to read or have a 10-minute yoga session from YouTube or from your favorite DVD or even go to a class. So really being clear with yourself 
how much time you actually have. And I've done this exercise a few times where I get caught up in that mindset of I don't have enough time and everything is too much and I can't get anything done. And that really affects my sense of achievement and it really affects my motivation. So what I sit down and do, as I said, is I write out wake up time, bedtime, work time, how many hours either side. And sometimes I've even realized that I have five hours a day that aren't earmarked for any real activity, except me maybe sitting down at my desk, staring at the computer and saying, I don't have enough time to do anything. Or this is so overwhelming. What what should I do first? Oh, it's all too hard. I'm going to go and you know, stare at another wall and complain about how little time I have. So be realistic. Not that I want you to map out every single moment of your day. That's not what I'm saying. I definitely want you to map out some time for self-care though. And often that's what women say. And men, I don't have enough time to connect with the kids or I don't have enough time to connect with my partner and I don't have enough time to wind down. Well, I challenge you and I dare you to email me and tell me how many hours did you find when you write at that map. And again, I do understand that people have some significant caring roles and other tasks and people are working more than one job and there are people out there who do really struggle. And I've heard stories about people who don't even go home in between jobs that they're working really long hours. But for the rest of you, I want you to be very serious about your self-care because in terms of motivation and achievement in no matter what we're doing, if we're too tired to even think about it because we haven't done our self-care, and we're not in a good sleep routine and we're not eating well, we're not drinking our water and we're not making time for some movement, of course, we're going to feel just a little bit of crazy. And that that affects all of us, me included. I know I can feel it when I haven't done any stretching and exercise. I, I really, really go through significant stages where I struggle to motivate myself to do structured exercise, but I can't afford to. I don't know if you remember, but um, actually you wouldn't because it was just before I launched the podcast and I've probably never even told this story, but just before my podcast launched a whole year ago, because this is actually episode 51. I'm very excited about the next episode, by the way, episode 52, because that's one year birthday for the podcast. But anyway, back back to the story. So just before my podcast launched in November, I woke up in the morning and I could not move my left arm. I was terrified and thought that I'd had a stroke, but I could move my fingers. So I realized that it it wasn't. And I woke my husband and I had extreme pain down my left arm. To cut a very long story short, what it turned out to be was that the muscle tension in my chest had been so severe that it had pulled the supraspinatus off my shoulder and had impinged a nerve and the bursa, so the cushiony bit inside my shoulder, had become inflamed. So it was sort of like three sort of issues happened all at once. But that was a huge lesson for me because leading up to the launch of the podcast, because I wanted to deliver you a fabulous podcast, I had spent so much time doing research and preparing that I had literally been at my computer for so long and not even a standing desk standing desk would have saved me because it was about having my um, chest and um, if you put your hands together like you're typing my my chest was constantly in that contracted position um, and I wasn't stretching it out Um, so yeah 
it was it was most unpleasant and I definitely am much more mindful about my stretching. But you know what? I do. I have times where I'm like, oh, you know, it's been a whole week since I've done those stretches and I can't afford not to do them because I am on the road a lot at the moment during uh, rural outreach clinics. Um, but, you know, driving, you know, which is in the same position and um, typing, being at the computer. So, again, it... Don't underestimate how important it is to do that stretching and have your, all those muscles. It feels so good when they're all stretched out. Um, so finding your favorite yoga DVD. I've actually been seeing a musculoskeletal therapist for the last year and she has been fantastic um, in helping me know what stretches are going to be really beneficial, but also in terms of understanding um, what muscle groups um, will be subsequently affected if I don't look after that. So posture and all sorts of things. But geez, we've taken a, <laughs> taken a bit of a sidestep there from talking about domestic violence, talking about motivation and how our expectation about what the results will be, whether it's exercise or any task, how important expectation is in terms of motivating us. So if your expectations aren't uh, focused on a hopeful or positive outcome, that that certainly can make it much trickier to motivate yourself. And certainly, I guess the tail part of our conversation was that, you know, we're all humans, we're we all run on the same muscles, skin and bones, and we need to look after those muscle, skin and bones to also keep our psychological health on track. So gosh, I enjoy having your company. I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. And as I said, I'm super excited about the next episode because that is the first birthday of the show. And I have a very special guest for that episode 52. Um, and that person was extremely critical um, to me, even deciding to put out a podcast. Even though it was sort of burning away, someone had to also light that fire and help help point me in the right direction. So I would love for you to join me on the next episode, my birthday episode. Thank you so much for joining me and please spread the word. Please tell your friends about the podcast and suggest they subscribe in iTunes. Um, and don't forget to please go and give the show a five-star rating. I noticed a couple of people have gone and given it a five-star rating, um, but that's really important to keep it visible in iTunes to have that rating done. You just need to pop on to iTunes on your computer, go to the Abnormal Psychologist and then click on the ratings. So thank you for joining me and see you on the next episode of The Abnormal Psychologist where we share real people's stories and give you real ideas so that you can realize your potential. Take care. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.